Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the book of Kings. We're going to read a few little passages from Kings. We start in 1 Kings 5. Then we'll go to chapter 9 for a few verses, then chapter 22, a few verses, and then to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, a few verses. Let's start in 1 Kings 5, page 361 in the Pew Bible. So as we come to the end of King Jehoshaphat's reign, we're going to read some of the background to help us understand our text where King Jehoshaphat builds some ships and we see something of the background of that in 1 Kings 5 and 9 and 22. We'll read the first 12 verses of 1 Kings 5. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year after year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. We'll turn now to chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. So King Solomon has a, had a number of building projects. Chapter 9 describes those projects. And then we come to one that pertains to our text, verse 26. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon." 
And now we move to chapter 22, same book. Chapter 22, we fast forward now to the reign of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat does not get a lot of uh, coverage in the book of Kings. A lot more is in the book of Chronicles, as we've been seeing. We're going to pick up the story, though, at verse 47 of chapter 22. Page 388. There was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoram his son reigned in his place. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. And to our last passage, we go to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Page 1229, 1229 in the Pew Bible. 2 Corinthians 6. And we'll read till chapter 7, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing. He says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers... For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Please turn with me to our text in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, page 472, 472 in the Pew Bible. We're going to focus on the last verses of this chapter, which gives us more or less the last part of the account of Jehoshaphat. But we'll just begin reading at verse 31, where we stopped last time. So verse 31, thus Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shilhi. He walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last are written in the chronicles of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. And here begins our text. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built the ships in Ezion, Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Marisha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. So far then, our text. In response to the preaching, we'll sing of God's saving grace and how He forgives His often sinning people by singing Psalm 107, the stanzas 9, 10, and 11. Holy and loved people of God, as we move toward the end of Jehoshaphat's reign recorded here in Chronicles, the inspired author rounds things off and he gives us overall a pretty rosy picture of Jehoshaphat's reign. And you'll recall, I think, that Jehoshaphat, though he was not a perfect king, had nevertheless been fairly faithful in dedicating his heart to, the, to serve the Lord. He even, says the Bible, he even outdid his father Asa, who himself did pretty well until the last years of his life. Verse 32 of chapter 20 says that Jehoshaphat walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. So that's kind of a summary phrase for all of Jehoshaphat's 25 years on the throne. So the author is wrapping up the account of Jehoshaphat, and the story ends on a happy note. And everybody loves a happy ending, right? And then comes our little text. A few verses after the summary, it's kind of like a footnote, maybe a postscript, and suddenly the smile disappears. Or at least the happy is diminished significantly. The details of our text might not be immediately clear to us, but there's no mistaking the Lord's displeasure with King Jehoshaphat, as expressed by the prophet Eliezer, and that actually ends Jehoshaphat's account on a sour note. Jehoshaphat, who had begun his kingship with such dedication to the Lord and under God's rich blessing, now has this, this shadow cast over his last years as he experiences divine judgment and has this public shame because the ships are wrecked before they leave the harbor. 
And when you read those verses, brothers and sisters, do you find that your heart just sinks a little bit? Don't we want to ask after this, this whole reign of Jehoshaphat, and we've gone through a number of kings now of Judah, don't we want to ask, is there never going to be a different king? Is there never going to be a king who stays faithful from start to finish? Why can't Jehoshaphat get it together and keep it together? Why? Because Jehoshaphat is like you and he's like me. Sinners who keep falling short. Sinners in desperate need of grace day by day, moment by moment. And God's grace comes also to this king in his last years. It comes in the form of discipline. And so I bring you this word of the Lord. The Lord disciplines his king for a repeat sin. We will seek to understand the sin and then also understand the discipline. Our text is kind of curious and unusual because all of a sudden we read about a shipping industry and that's something we hardly ever hear about in Israel or Judah. Ever since the Israelites settled into the land of Canaan and had taken over their, the territory, most of that territory is, is landlocked. Of course, they had the small sea of Galilee and then they had access to the Dead Sea, but these themselves are small and they are also landlocked. You can't have access to the ocean or to the wider seas through those bodies of water. It was only under the time of, under the reign of King Solomon that they, for a time, had easy access to the Mediterranean Sea. And generally, even then, the, the Israelites were not seafaring people. They were farmers, they were herders, they were craftsmen, landlubbers all, but they were not sailors. Even in Solomon's day when, as we read, the Israelites did manage to sail off, some of them anyway, to far-off lands, even then they relied on Hiram, king of Tyre, and the Sidonians. They were expert sailors. The, the, these were the Phoenicians of old. They were expert sailors, and they were the ones that navigated and led the way on the ships. So in the history of Israel, in the history of the kings, we don't read a lot about shipbuilding. We don't read about voyages on the open waters, except first under Solomon for a bit, and now here again under Jehoshaphat. Only Jehoshaphat's attempt to set sail fails dramatically. We learn from that parallel account in 1 Kings 22 that the ships, they never even left the harbor at Ezion Geber, there in the northern tip of the Red Sea. The Lord destroyed the ships before they could make, make their, their maiden voyage. Why would the Lord do that? Was God against shipping? Well, obviously that's not the case because earlier God had blessed Solomon when he sent his ships abroad. We know from the king's account that Jehoshaphat had intended to send the ships to Ophir in order to bring back the gold that was known to be there, just as Solomon had done earlier. Was that what God had a problem with? Was there some kind of greed going on here? Well, there's no indication in the text or anywhere else in uh, Jehoshaphat's reign that he was 
greedy or had a problem with, with building up his own wealth. And obviously, Solomon had sent off to Ophir to get gold, so getting gold from abroad was not objectionable to God. So all in all, it seems that Jehoshaphat's intentions were the same as Solomon's intentions. He's, he's repeating, he's trying to repeat what Solomon had done. He wants to build upon the commerce and the trade that the Israelites were already engaging in over, over land. I mean, that was going on all the time, trade between neighboring countries over land routes. But now he wants to expand on that by taking to the sea, just like Solomon had done. He wants to expand his business. He wants to expand Israel's business. And I want to just pause over that for a moment and ask, do you, do you see in this how Solomon before him and now Jehoshaphat they are simply obeying that original command of God to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over the earth, that command from Genesis 1. God had placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to till that garden and keep that garden, and he was meant to expand that garden outward, that development outward into the world. Adam was meant to bring order and, and development to what was an unorganized and undeveloped world outside the garden. The whole earth needed to be cultivated. That was man's task, still is man's task. Very much like how God had taken His original creation. You remember Genesis 1, He just spoke and, and the universe came into being, but it was a, an unformed mass of, of the world that came into being. And then over the next number of days, God worked to, to separate water from earth and land from water on the earth, on the surface of the earth. He created a, a space that was habitable by creatures and by humans. So God, you could say, developed the potential of His own initial creation. Well, man now has to imitate that. We are to reflect God's God in this manner as well, turning the resources of the world into useful, productive things so that human life and animal life can flourish. The first Adam had failed in that task, but God had promised another Adam to do that work, the Christ. And so we see in our text, in, in King Jehoshaphat, we see the Spirit of Christ at work in him, wanting to develop creation's potential. His business, the king's business, Israel's business, is actually God's business. I want to just mention this and, and, and clarify, because sometimes we don't see the connection to our daily labor. Your daily labor, my daily labor, fits right into this. Whether that's building your, your own business or offering your service to your employer or caring for your family at home or sitting as a student in the classroom or finding projects to do in your retirement. Christianity is not just about redeeming your soul so that you can be with God in heaven. It's that, but it's much more. It's also about redeeming our whole life here on the earth so that today already we can walk with God in every endeavor, in all that we do, including our daily work. So you and I, we need to know that when we get up Monday mornings and set off on our task each day, that we go to our jobs as followers of Jesus Christ, and whether you are self-employed 
or whether you draw a paycheck from an employer, or whether you're just a volunteer, you've got a boss named Jesus. We all work for Christ. And our labor is never in vain when we're working for Christ. He promises us that. 1 Corinthians 15, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So sometimes we find that our work, it seems to be done and then it disappears and we we can't find it back anymore. But God promises us that by His power and might, He will use our daily labor, however small it may seem. He's going to use it to develop creation's potential in serving the cause of His kingdom. We're going to go from the Garden of Eden to the city of God in Revelation, right? That's development. That's cultural development. And your daily labor is all part of it. So, brothers and sisters, when you go to work, do so with purpose, with dedication, and with joy because you work for the Lord. Only we must be careful who we partner with in our work. That's the real issue in our text. The problem is not that Jehoshaphat wanted to send ships abroad, but it's the partner he chooses to do it with. Ahaziah, king of Israel. Who is Ahaziah? Well, we read that from 1 Kings 22. He was the son of that wicked, wicked king Ahab. And listen to how the Holy Spirit describes him. As we read it in 1 Kings 22, Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father and in the ways of his mother, that was Jezebel, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. In other words, this Ahaziah was a chip off the old block. He was a protege of his evil father. And you remember that it was that King Ahab that the Lord had recently put to death in the battle at Ramoth-Gilead That's the same battle that this King Jehoshaphat we've been dealing with had agreed to fight in alongside of Ahab. The same battle that was lost in humiliation because God fought against them. The same battle from which Jehoshaphat barely escaped with his life. Remember? The same battle on the heels of which Jehoshaphat was accosted by God's prophet Jehu, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. And now here is Jehoshaphat, maybe a year later, doing the same thing with Ahab's son, engaging in a joint venture with an evil neighbor. Well, there's at least two things to pick up on here. There's the sin of joining forces with an unbeliever. That's one aspect. And then there's the aspect that this is a repeat sin. This is round number two of the same sin for Jehoshaphat. Well, let's start by clarifying the the nature of the sin. What kind of sin is this exactly? Is God upset when His people associate with unbelievers? Is that the sin? Should we avoid non-Christians altogether? Are we to think of people outside the church as untouchable, as inferior, as people to be avoided at all costs? Well, the simple answer is no. 
We've got lots of examples in the Bible of believers associating to a degree with unbelievers. Think of Father Abraham. Abraham lived in Canaan. He was on good terms with at least some of his Canaanite neighbors. Genesis 14, Mamre, Eshcol, and, and Aner, to the point where those three joined him as allies in fighting against those invaders who had captured Lot, his nephew. King David was known to have good relations with his neighboring nations, neighboring kings. Some of those neighbors from uh, the Gentile peoples around him even became important soldiers in his army, people like Uriah the Hittite. He was a Hittite, but he was someone who loved the Lord and joined David. Same with Hiram, king of Tyre, with whom Solomon partnered successfully to go to Ophir for gold. Hiram rejoiced in the Lord, we read in 1 Kings 5, when Solomon responded wisely to his overture. And in the New Testament, we have the command of our Lord Jesus to go out to the nations. So we have to talk to the nations. We have to spread the gospel. In fact, we are some of the nations, right? We find the Apostle Paul speaking with kindness and respect to the Philippian jailer who had first put him in stocks. He does the same with the Roman soldiers guarding him on the ship, Acts 27. So let's be very, very clear. We are, all of us, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are loved to love every neighbor, believer or unbeliever. We are to remember that by nature, we're no different than people outside of Christ. We're no different than the unbeliever. We are all sinners alike. It's, it's only by God's grace that we have faith, that we've come into the family of God. We historically were unbelievers that God brought to, to Himself. So we should love all of our neighbors. We should love them enough to share the gospel with them. We should love them to be at peace with them as far as we can from our side. And if our unbelieving neighbors accept the gospel and give their life to serve the Lord Jesus, then fantastic, we welcome them into the body of Christ. We welcome them with open arms into the church and we, we fellowship with them as friends and we, we welcome them as brothers and sisters. Then we can partner with them in all kinds of ways, in business or in marriage or in whatever. All that is quite different from what Jehoshaphat did. First with Ahab and now again with his son Ahaziah. This is much more than casual contact with an unbeliever. It's a very close and binding alliance. Notice the description in our text. It occurs three times. Jehoshaphat joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel. That verb has the sense of being knit together or sewn together, and then it's as a metaphor, sewn together in a common purpose. This is the language of a team or a partnership that, that's got a commitment to work together for the same goal. Only Ahaziah's goal is not the same as Jehoshaphat's goal, is it? They're on opposite teams, actually. Ahaziah worshipped Baal. Ahaziah had no regard for the true God of Israel, Yahweh while Jehoshaphat rejected Baal. And Jehoshaphat had a true and living relationship with the Lord, his God. 
And that's what upsets God so much. It's, it's when Jehoshaphat ignored that underlying fundamental opposition and difference that God takes offense. It's when Jehoshaphat joins together with someone who is opposed to God, who's working for the other kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. That's what angers the Lord. For that is not only hypocrisy, but it actually disrespects and dishonors God who will have nothing to do with the kingdom of Satan. That's what Paul is writing about in 2 Corinthians 6, which we read together. He says there, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's using a metaphor, the metaphor of a yoke. A yoke is like a, a wooden beam that would get laid across the necks of two animals, like two oxen. Farmers would use this. They would, they would join together these two enormous beasts by this wooden yoke so that they could pull the farmer's load, whether it was a plow or a wagon or whatever, they could pull the load in tandem. Now, a farmer would always pair together two animals of the same size and strength because if he didn't, something bad would happen. If one was smaller and weaker than the other, the yoke, the yoked pair, would, would simply pull in the direction of the stronger one. The stronger one always would, would be ahead of that weaker one. And so what you'd have, if you can imagine pulling a wagon, you'd have the wagon going off course. You'd have the wagon actually going in circles eventually. That's what being unequally yoked is all about. And no farmer would ever unequally yoke his animals. And so the apostle is saying, Christians do not be unequally yoked. Do not be bound together with a non-Christian because you cannot effectively serve in the kingdom. You'll just go around in circles. You're not pulling together in the same way. And the reason is simple. The unbeliever serves a different God, doesn't he? Or she. The unbeliever has different goals. The unbeliever has a different worldview. And not just different, but opposite from the Christian. There might be cordial relations on the surface, but underneath there is a fundamental disagreement on all the important areas and matters of life. And there's this, this, this opposition, this enmity between those two. That's what Paul points out as we read, what fellowship has light with darkness? They're opposites. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another name for Satan. This is the great sin that Jehoshaphat fell into. He knew where Ahab's loyalties lay. There was no secret. There wasn't the question mark whether Ahab was an unbeliever or not. He also knew where Ahaziah's heart lay. And yet, Jehoshaphat yoked himself to them. First in a military alliance, then later in this business venture of our text, but both are denounced by the Lord as offensive, as hurtful to God, and as disastrous for the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, can we learn this lesson too? It's still relevant for believers today, as Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 6. When Solomon, in his day, partnered 
in a business venture. He didn't just partner with any Gentile king. He partnered with one, Hiram, king of Tyre, who recognized and honored the Lord. It says that Hiram loved David, and he rejoiced in the Lord. This is a believing man, Hiram, king of Tyre. But later on, that very same Solomon, in his foolishness, you know what he did in his latter years, he married foreign wives who clung to their idols. And he let them, their, their, these idol-worshipping women, into his life, into his home. Can you imagine the wisest king of all time acting so foolishly? He spent his last years going in circles, unequally yoked. You can read that in the, in, in the account in Kings. The last years of Solomon were years of frustration that he brought upon himself by his sin. How easy the sin. How great the cost. It cost Solomon the kingdom. He lost ten tribes. It nearly cost Jehoshaphat his life the first time in the battle, and now his ships are destroyed in the harbor. Let us, brothers and sisters, learn from this and be ever so careful to partner only with those who are already faithful servants of the Lord. Whether in love or in business or in battle, be yoked only with those who are already yoked to Jesus. This was particularly hard to learn for Jehoshaphat, which is the other thing in our text. This is a, a repeat sin for this man. It's the second time he's fallen into this serious sin. You ever have that? A sin that you've fallen into? But God shook you out of it one way or the other? And you were thankful to escape. You knew it was wrong. You were thankful to escape with maybe some damage, maybe some shame, and a big scare, only to fall into the very same sin again some months down the road. That's what's happening here. I mean, King Ahaziah, we know, had a very short kingship, only two years. So this whole shipbuilding enterprise maybe took place a year after Ahab's death, a year after Jehoshaphat nearly lost his life in the battle at Ramoth-Gilead. How come Jehoshaphat didn't learn from his mistake? His first mistake. What's his problem? How come I didn't learn from my first mistake? How come you didn't learn from your first mistake? We should ask, what's our problem? Now, we shouldn't go too far the other way with all this, as if everyone is always doomed to be repeating old sins forever. That would be selling short the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. For as believers, as Christians, we are new creatures in Christ. We do have a new nature, and that new nature is setting us on a new course. So we have examples of that in Scripture too. Already in the Old Testament, David David, yes, he fell hard, right? He committed adultery, he lied, he murdered. 
But as far as we know, he never committed adultery a second time. He never murdered a second time. New Testament, we have Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. In their day jobs, they were thieving tax collectors. But when Jesus called them to follow him, they gave it all up and they never stole again. Think of the demon-possessed man who went about naked among the tombs and cut himself and howled at the moon. But when Jesus saved him, he never lived like that again. He went around fully clothed and in his right mind. So true believers are definitely different from unbelievers. They are definitely different from what they were before. There's a whole new direction in their lives. There's a wholehearted service to God. Same as Jehoshaphat. And yet sin crops up. That's the vexing problem we all live with as Christians. Jehoshaphat was a sincere believer of whom it is twice said in Chronicles that he sought the Lord and he walked in his ways and yet he had this nasty, damaging, recurring sin. Sometimes this kind of sin is called a besetting sin. Maybe you've heard that expression, a besetting sin. What that means is that it's, it's like a, the sin besieges you. The temptation besieges you like an army besieges a city, surrounding you, pounding you, attacking you, always trying to break you down. That's a besetting sin. It's persistent. And we know it's wrong. We, we know the temptation to go for it is wrong. We know this particular sin offends our God. We know it's got bad consequences for us, but somehow we talk ourselves into that besetting sin again and again. We ignore God's warnings or the warnings that people give us. We turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what we know Scripture says about it or to the, the memory of our most recent fall. I mean, Jehoshaphat must have blocked out the fact that he nearly died in battle a year earlier. And the next thing you know, we're right into it, indulging that sin to our hurt, to our regret, to God's dishonor all over again. Did you know that Jehoshaphat commits this same sin for a third time? Later, maybe a year or two later, with Ahaziah's brother Jehoram. After Ahaziah's di Ahaziah died, his brother comes to the throne, and then Jehoshaphat does with Jehoram exactly what he did with Ahab, and he takes up the invitation of Jehor Jehoram to go with him into battle, though Jehoram was no different than his brother or his father. And that sin of Jehoshaphat, his obsession with joining with unbelieving people, satanically inclined people, that nearly wiped out his own family line. It nearly wiped out the house of David. Did you know that? If you read a little further in Chronicles, you'll find that we come to the reign of Queen Athaliah who, in Judah, who was a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. What does Athaliah do? She nearly kills all the sons of Jehoshaphat and all the sons of David. She nearly rubs out the line to the Christ. That's the cost that Jehoshaphat paid. 
repeat sins not only bring guilt and grief to our souls, but they can cause a tremendous amount of damage in the church, among family and friends too. That is why this painful discipline of God is a mercy from Him. When we go against God's commandments and join ourselves in some kind of ungodly partnership with someone who's working for Satan, we cannot expect God to bless. In fact, we would deserve to fall under His curse. God would, have, would be within His rights to, to place us under His curse. But what God does is to punish us with His loving hand of discipline in order to prompt us to repentance, just like He does with Jehoshaphat. That's what he's doing, what God is doing in destroying the ships in the harbor at Ezion Geber. For Jehoshaphat, this would have been a painful loss, a costly financial loss, not just of the ships, but also of the gold that could have been brought from Ophir. To have access to this particular port at Ezion Geber was unusual because normally, historically, that area belonged to Edom. It was normally under king, the king of Edom's control, but Edom was weak during this period, and Jehoshaphat had access to Ezion Geber. So this was kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Let's build some ships. Let's send them off to do business with Ophir. Let's bring back some gold. Let's make Israel rich again under God's blessing, but the Lord wrecks the ships. And that was a good thing. Why? Because it meant the breakup of that wicked alliance with the house of Ahab. It was a blessing in disguise because it separated Ahaziah from Jehoshaphat. The two partners were pulled apart, and in their place the enmity was restored so that there was this distinction again between a servant of the devil and the servant of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do not despise do not hate the disciplining hand of the Lord in your life. When you and I fall into one of those kinds of sins and the Lord visits us with punishing, with, with some kind of punishment, understand that as discipline to course correct. The blessing is in the course correction. It's painful, the punishment, but the blessing is the result. You know, later the Lord actually confronts this King Ahaziah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 1. He actually confronts Ahaziah with his idolatry, and he visits Ahaziah with sickness. So there's a form of punishment and even discipline upon Ahaziah, this, this Baal-worshipping king of Israel, but Ahaziah does not repent. Ahaziah despised the discipline of God. He rejects God even more. He hardens in his sin. With Jehoshaphat, it's different. In our text, in Chronicles 20, 2 Chronicles 20, there's no specific reaction recorded, but from 2 Kings 22, we know that Jehoshaphat gave up on the venture. He didn't go in for a second round building new ships. Ahaziah asked him, but Jehoshaphat turned him down flat. We're not going to go, Ahaziah. The partnership is done. 
So Jehoshaphat got it. He knew he had been wrong again. And Jehoshaphat repented of his sin again. And the Lord his God forgave him his sin again. That is the blessed result of the painful discipline. I asked at the start of the sermon, is there never going to be a king who stays faithful from beginning to end? Jehoshaphat was one of the best. And yet he had deep failures just like Solomon and David who were also among the best. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if Israel could have a king that loved God with all of his heart, that, that never wavered? A king who could lead God's people in loving obedience and joyful service and do that consistently and do that continually all his life? Wouldn't that be something? Yes, it would. It would be grand. And the good news is, the gospel is, brothers and sisters, that God has given His people just that king in Jesus the Christ. He's the greater Jehoshaphat. He's the greater son of David. And all of his life, you know, he was confronted by temptations like Jehoshaphat had been and David and Solomon. But never did Jesus give in. Jesus was besieged and beset by many attacks of the devil and of the world. They wanted to make him rebel against his father, but Jesus never caved. Not even for a second. He came to the earth and he rose to the throne to do his father's will, to save his father's people from their enemies, the greatest enemy of which is their very own sin. And Jesus did that by laying down his life in payment for Jehoshaphat's besetting sin, for Israel's besetting sins, for your besetting sins, and my besetting sins, for all that shames us and all that we do that hurts God and offends our Lord. All are forgiven in Christ. We hope to celebrate that next Sunday morning in the Lord's Supper. But already today, Already today, see in Jesus that, that great King, Son of David, the one who died also for your besetting sins. And understand that He lives now in heaven as ruler, as King Supreme, with all authority in heaven and on earth. And He has commanded and He sent forth His Spirit to live in you and in me. Why? to put a stop to those besetting sins, those repeat sins. So call out to your king in prayer, brothers and sisters. Plead with him for his transforming grace to help you say no to that powerfully attractive sin. Oh, it's powerful. We all know it. The sin that seems to have your number, the sin that you can't seem to give up, confess it to your king Pray for forgiveness. You will always be forgiven, even for the besetting sins. But then in the power of His Spirit, learn to say no. You will be able to say no today and tomorrow and every tomorrow after that. Repeat sins. They can be stopped. Those besetting sins, they can be crushed under your feet by the power of the risen Savior. 
That's good news too, isn't it? There's hope for the battle. Just as he died to pay for your sins, guilt, wash you clean like the snow outside. Why would the Lord Jesus hesitate to set you free from the grip of that sin? He died for it. He'll help you. Fight this fight. Fight it in prayer and see your Savior help you, protect you, bless you, day after day after day until the day when there is no longer any battle left. Amen.